If you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you do, please take them out and turn with me to Mark's Gospel, chapter 2. Mark's Gospel, the second chapter, and we're going to continue our study through uh, the book of Mark this morning. But if you recall, I mentioned earlier what our schedule would be like over the next couple of weeks. Next week on Palm Sunday, when we traditionally as a church celebrate Jesus' final and triumphal entry into the holy city of Jerusalem, uh, we traditionally take that Sunday as a church family to also celebrate the Lord's Supper because it was during that week that Jesus celebrated the Last Supper that he uh, had with his disciples. And so we will do that next week and remind ourselves of Passover and uh, uh, also everything that took place with the Last Supper. Uh, and then, as I mentioned, on Easter Sunday, we will celebrate the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And the reason I reiterate that this morning is because what that's going to allow us to do is we're going to take a couple of weeks off from our study through Mark's Gospel. We're going to leave things behind. And, but this hiatus comes at a really appropriate time, honestly, in light of everything that is taking place in Mark's Gospel that we've been kind of building through and building up to in our study over the past number of weeks. Um, if, you'll re if you'll recall, when I introduced Mark's Gospel to you, I, I said that I believe that Mark wrote with three primary questions in the back of his mind that he wanted to answer for us or cause us to question in ourselves and, and answer for ourselves. And those three questions really are this, who is Jesus? What kind of Messiah is Jesus? And then what does that mean for you and, you and I? Or, or really, what effect does that information should it have upon us as individuals? And what I want you to know is that by what we've seen thus far in Mark's Gospel and where we come to as we look at what's taking place in Mark's Gospel, we recognize that the Pharisees and the scribes, they really have those same questions on their minds as well. They want to know what kind of guy Jesus actually is. What does he mean doing some of the things that he does and, and acting in some of the ways that he acts, saying some of the things that he says? And then they're really trying to answer the question, well, what does that mean for us? What do we do with him? How do we respond to him in light of what we see. And really what we've already begun to see is the little breezes are starting to blow. The winds are starting to blow of, of suspicion and contempt and, and even hatred toward Jesus. You see, Jesus had, had created quite a stir when he came. He, he had garnered quite a bit of attention to himself, announcing that the kingdom of God was imminent. The kingdom of God was at hand, he says. And, and then he had dumbfounded the people through his his authoritative teaching when he was in the synagogues. He, he, he had also preached a message of repentance and faith. He had amazed the crowds with his, his powers and his ability to heal people of their physical diseases and also to, to cast out demons from them. He had created such a degree that, that crowds followed him wherever he went. Throngs of people pressed in upon him to the degree that he was not even able to go into certain cities in the Galilean region. And he developed his own band of followers, his own disciples, who had begun to follow him around wherever he went. And one of those guys, shockingly enough, was a low-down, rotten, dirty tax collector. Jesus had garnered a lot of attention to himself, so much so that he was now under the microscope of the religious establishment who were watching every move that he made. They questioned everything that he did. And as we've already seen in previous studies, and what we'll continue to see in future studies, is that Jesus' words and his actions continued to produce these collisions that occurred between him and the scribes and the Pharisees. 
And consequently, those winds of suspicion and even jealousy and contempt, they really began to blow. And Jesus no doubt felt those breezes, but he also knew that they would ultimately turn into gale force winds. Those breezes would ultimately turn into hurricane of hate that would eventually send him to the cross. And it's against that mounting backdrop of, of hostility that, that Jesus provides us with two really short parables in the passage that we're going to look at this morning that explain why that hatred and why that opposition was inevitable. They come in the context of another one of the collisions that we see taking place here in chapter 2 of Mark's Gospel, a collision that occurs between Jesus and the Pharisees regarding the issue of fasting. And so I want us to read that in the context this morning and then focus on those two verses, verses 21 and 22. But back up with me and let's begin reading in verse 18. There we read this. The disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting. And then they came and said to him, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old, and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine in old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins. The wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank You for Your Word, and thank You, God, for what it teaches us. Thank you that you've revealed yourself through your word to us. But you also reveal who we are apart from your word. Apart from the truth of the gospel. So Lord, I pray that as we delve into this passage and as we chew on it, as we study it, that you would use it to, to bring about good in our lives. You'd, you'd use it to bring about that which we need most. And that is to be conformed in the image of your son, Jesus. I pray that you'd help us to, to push out all the things that would distract us and all the things that are clamoring for our attention. Things from the past week, things from the weeks that are upcoming. Help us to be able to focus for just a few minutes on the truth of your word and then allow it to transform us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I have to be honest with you. These two parables in verses 21 and 22 are among my favorite that Jesus teaches. We don't get a lot of teaching from Jesus in Mark. Mark records more of the things that Jesus did, not as much of what Jesus taught as we find in Luke and in Matthew, but here we find a moment of teaching, and it's, and it's a brief one, but it's very, very compact, but it's very packed with good stuff. The reason why I like these two parables so much is because I think they're, they're pretty straightforward. They're logical. They just make sense. The first one, Jesus describes the futility and the senselessness of taking a piece of cloth that 
is unshrunk and, and has, never, is, has never been uh, shrunk through water before. We don't have a lot of that kind of fabric in our society today. Most times you buy stuff, it's already pre-shrunk. But, but in that day, you, if you found a cloth it, it, and it had never been wet, it had never shrunk down to its, its eventual size. And so Jesus says it's absolutely useless to take cloth like that that has never been cut and, and shrunk down to size and then use that as a patch to put on your five-year-old son's knees when he's been out in the yard playing and getting holes all in his, in his, in his uh, pants from playing out in the yard. Now, you can tell that that may be my scenario, and you know I'm probably not the one patching his pants. My wife is, but when she does that, she doesn't take a piece of unshrunk cloth to fix that hole. Why? Well, because eventually you're going to wash those pants. And when you do, when that water gets on that piece of unshrunken cloth, what's it going to do? It's finally going to shrink. And when it does, it will pull away from the older fabric of the older garment and you will have a hole that is much bigger than what it was to begin with. Jesus says that's, you need to understand that. Then he tells the second parable. It's the parable of, that, that for us may be a little bit, in our day-to-day, -day, it's, it's, it's the parable of, of new wine into old wineskins. Today, most of the time when we think of wine, it, it, they come in, in glass bottles, which means that it may not be as, as readily a, a apparent to us what Jesus is trying to say. In first century world, the way that they would, they would store wine is they would, they would, they would slaughter a, a goat and they would take the, the skin of that goat and they would tan it very lightly and they would often turn it inside out and then they would sew it together and then once it had been sewn together they would put the the juice of grapes inside that container and then when the fermentation process began to take place of those grapes that chemical reaction would begin to happen and the fermenting would happen and there would be a lot of expanding that would go on but that goat skin was flexible enough and elastic enough that it could handle that expansion that was taking place inside that leather container. Jesus said, that's fine, but no one takes the, the, the grapes juice and that's going to ferment in the new wine and puts it inside a container that's already expanded to its, to its greatest possible extent. It's already become brittle. It's already gone as far as it can go. Nobody puts wine like that. Why? Because when that fermenting process begins to take place and the chemical reaction starts happening... Well, it'll burst that wineskin and all of the wineskin will be ruined and so will the wine. It'll be spilled on the ground. And Jesus uses those two parables that are simple. They, they really make sense when you think about them. They're logical. He takes those things and then he, he uses them against the backdrop of this mounting opposition and hostility that he is experiencing at the hands of the scribes and the Pharisees who saw themselves as the guardians and the caretakers and the keepers of Judaism and the law of Moses. And so in light of that, he tells these two parables. Let's remind ourselves of everything that's been happening before Jesus spoke these words and even let's see what happens after he spoke these words. First of all, let's remind ourselves of, of something that we studied in the past couple of weeks regarding the way in which Jesus treated sinners and outcasts. You see, to the scribes and the Pharisees, people like Levi the tax collector that we met back in verse 14 of chapter 2, guys like him that were willful outcasts and sinners, those kind of people were, were, they were reprobates. They were people to be avoided at all costs. You didn't have any contact in any 
kind of thing to do with them because they would, they would wind up affecting you and causing you to become unclean. They were to be avoided. But Jesus did things differently, didn't he? Jesus walked right up to Levi who was sitting there at his tax booth. And he walked right up to him and he called him to be one of his disciples. And what that tells us is that when Jesus looked at Levi, he didn't just see a category. He didn't just see a sinner. He didn't just see a tax collector and an outcast. What he saw was a man, a man who needed to benefit from the, from the gospel message that he had come to deliver. Furthermore, what we notice is that Levi wasn't told by Jesus, hey, look, go get yourself cleaned up and then I'll be your friend. Jesus didn't start by saying you need to shine yourself up and get all righteous and then we can talk about a relationship with one another. That's not how it began. It began by Jesus just simply looking him in the eye and saying, follow me, and then Levi obeyed. And as a result of that, the righteousness of Christ began to radically transform this man's life. Now, Jesus took that same radical approach and, and, and it was punctuated by the fact that he went to this banquet that Levi threw in his honor. And it was a banquet that was attended by many of Levi's friends who were also tax collectors and sinners. And then down in verse 16 of chapter 2 that we looked at last week, we found that Jesus went to this banquet at Levi's house and that just completely messed the scribes and the Pharisees up. They couldn't believe that he had gone there. And so they asked this question, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? In other words, they want to know, what does this man think he's doing? Underlying that question really is the belief that only the only proper people that Jesus should be hanging out with The only proper people that Jesus should ever be spending that amount of time with was folks like them religious people meticulous people Fastidious people who like to keep the rules and like to keep the laws That's who Jesus really needed to be hanging out with because those were the only folks who were truly righteous And that leads me to the first thing that I want you to see when we're thinking about New wine into old wineskins and a new patch that's sewn on old garments. We need to remember this. The gospel is for sinners and outcasts. It's not for the righteous and the religious, the self-righteous and the religious. The gospel's for, for sinners and outcasts like you and me. Now understand that. Understanding that how radical the nature of the gospel is and how that confounded the religious elite of his day, we can begin to understand how these two parables kind of come into to play, into the criticism that Jesus experienced. You see, to them, religion was all about making yourself acceptable to God through a strict obedience to the law. In their minds, one's righteousness was obtained through one's actions. But Jesus told them plainly, look, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. In other words, those who believe that they have it all together, those who believe that they can make themselves commendable to God, well, they have no need of a Savior. The good news that Jesus came to bring to sinners and outcasts, it's no use to someone who considers themselves righteous and religious. Consequently, Jesus and his message just blew up the pharisaical and the legalistic religious structure that was prevalent in his day. That's the first place we go to. The second thing that I want you to see, though, begins in verse 18, and it begins with what I began reading to you this morning about fasting. And really, the, the problem that arises comes in verse 18. Notice once more, he's, Mark tells us that the disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to Jesus, why do your disciples not fast? Now, 
we could spend a little time this morning talking about the two different groups, the disciples of John the Baptist and then these Pharisees and scribes. And, and, and we could talk about the differences and why they were fasting because it's very likely that John the Baptist's disciples were fasting for one particular reason and then the Pharisees and scribes were fasting for different reasons. We could get into all that this morning, but the main thing that I want you to know is, is that both were doing the same thing. They were fasting. The real issue of this text is not why they were fasting. The real issue of this text is that you've got a third party. You've got a third group of people, and it was the disciples of Jesus, and they were not fasting. And what we see is, is that, his, that these folks were really upset by the fact that Jesus' disciples were not participating in the things that they were departing from the tradition that had been given to them. They were a group who was doing things different from what everyone else does. And so these opponents to Jesus basically asked this question, why don't your disciples, why don't you do things like we do them? Why don't you conform to our ways of religion, religious expression? And really underlying those questions is this, why do you always seem to be advocating joy and celebration? Now, the first thing we might say is, that, well, what is wrong with being joyful? And what's wrong with, with, with having a life that, that's characterized by celebration? But you understand to the scribes and to the Pharisees, they understood the practice of religion to be very different. To, to them, religion was, was a dour experience. It was, it was something that was solemn. It was even somber, even. You might find it interesting to note that the people of Israel were only required to fast one day a year, and that was on the Day of Atonement. But by the time that the New Testament rolls around and we start learning about the Pharisees, they had added on to it to the point where now they were advocating that people fast twice every week. Furthermore, what we learn from Jesus' teaching regarding fasting from the Sermon on the Mount is that when the hypocritical Pharisees fasted, you know what they did? They put on a sad countenance. They... They caused their face to become disfigured so that people would know that they'd been fasting and so that they would give credit to them for doing so. But the countenance of their faces and the sadness that they indicated really was indicative of what they thought of religion was supposed to be. It was something that was solemn, joyless. You ever know folks who thought that's what church was supposed to be like? solemn and somber and joyless. I read a little funny story this week about a, a mother who, who had her young daughter in a worship service and, and, and the little girl got to turning around and she saw somebody on the pew behind her and she just smiled and waved at her. And then her mother noticed and she turned and she swatted her on her backside and told her to turn around and sit down. She said, you stop that grinning, we're in church. <laughs> you know, sometimes I think people think that, that joy and Celebration and church go together sort of like toothpaste and orange juice. You know, they just don't. You kind of get the idea that maybe that's the way the Pharisees thought about religion. Something very solemn, very dour. But when Jesus came along, he cast things in a completely different light. In fact, Jesus and his followers became no more for their feasting than they did for their fasting. In fact, it's just shortly after these events take place, according to Luke's gospel and Matthew's gospel, that Jesus comes under attack again by the Pharisees. And you know what they say about him? Matthew eleven nineteen. 19, Jesus talks about how his critics denounced him as being a glutton and a drunkard. Verse 
You see, in their opinion, the Pharisees and the scribes believed that Jesus hung out with way too many tax collectors and sinners and he went to way too many banquets. And it's really that sense of frustration with Jesus that's behind this question that the Pharisees asked concerning why his, why his disciples do not fast. And so Jesus just asks a question back. He's been asked a question, now he returns a question and, and, and he says this in verse 19, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? And knowing his own answer, he answers it for them. He says, as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Now, here Jesus uses a, a metaphor in, in which he compares himself to a groom who's about to be married. And, and, and he uses this comparison because weddings particularly in the first century world, were, were great big times of celebration in that culture. Weddings were not like what we have today. Weddings can be times of celebration today, but here's typically what will happen. You have a bride and a groom, and they come together, and you get together on a certain day, and a preacher stands before them and pronounces them, and the service lasts 20 to 30, 40 minutes, and then after that is over with, they go out and you have a reception someplace, and then after that reception's over with, you see the bride and groom, and they get in the car, and they go, and everybody says, way, well, y'all hope y'all have a great time, have a great time on your honeymoon. And that's the way we celebrate things today, typically, but that is not how things were done in the first century world. In the first century world, what would happen would be that the groom would leave his home and he would travel to where the bride lived and he would go there and he would take the hand of his bride and he would take her from her house and lead her in a procession back to his house where there would be a grand feast that was set up and a big celebration, a time of a banquet would be put in place and all the family and the friends and everybody would come and they would celebrate and it went on and on and on for as much as a week, perhaps even 10 days, they would celebrate this time of this bride and this groom coming together to be married. And what Jesus is saying in light of that cultural understanding of what takes place at a wedding Jesus says, there's no way that the friends of the bridegroom are going to be fasting while he has the bridegroom with him. You see, at such a celebratory feast like that, it would have been unthinkable for someone to be fasting at that moment. As a matter of fact, the rabbinical rulings that were passed down with regard to weddings at that time basically said that all who were in attendance at a, at the, at, with the bridegroom at their celebration, they were relieved of all religious observations and observances which would lessen their joy. You see, the purpose of a wedding was for joy. It was not for, not for sadness. Now, Jesus is taking this metaphor and he's applying it to himself and to his disciples. And what he is saying is that it was completely appropriate for them to feast and to have joy and to have celebration. Why? Because their bridegroom is with them. On the contrary, it would be completely inappropriate for them to fast as long as he was with them. Expressions of, of fasting, which the Pharisees had directly linked to, to being somber and solemn, were completely inappropriate when you were in the presence of the bridegroom. Now, notice that Jesus says that situation doesn't go on indefinitely, though. Verse 20, Jesus says, The days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Now, scholars differ with respect to what they think Jesus actually means by this verse. 
Is he alluding to the fact that the days will come when after he's crucified and before he's raised from the dead, that that window there are the days that he's talking about here when it would be appropriate for them to fast? Or, or is he talking more about the period following his ascension prior to his second coming, the time in which you and I live today? Now, I believe the latter option is more plausible, but in light of that, we need to ask ourselves this question. In light of the moment in which we live, a time in which the physical presence of Jesus is not with us, is this an appropriate time for us to feast or to fast? Is this an appropriate time for us to, to celebrate? Or is this also a time of sadness? Well, quite frankly, I believe that both are entirely appropriate. You see, the Scripture tells us that Jesus is the groom. And he has prepared this feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that one day he's going to leave his home and he's going to come and he's going to take the hand of his bride of whom all who have been saved and are a part of the body of Christ make up that bride. And one day he's going to grab that hand of his bride of which we're a part and then he's going to take us back to his home where we will sit down at the table and we will feast with him. We will participate with him in his body and in his blood and we will celebrate for an eternity the fact that we have been brought to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, brothers and sisters, that's something to celebrate. That's something to be excited about. That is something that we can have great joy about. But also, while we wait for that, this is a time of fasting. It's a time of fasting because that time, even though it is guaranteed to happen, has not yet come. And so we wait. We wait for the bridegroom's return. And until he returns, we fast and we pray for his kingdom to come. And our fasting represents the fact that we have within us a hunger and a joy that will not only be satisfied when Jesus comes again, but that we know that we will live in eternity with him in that joy. So though we should fast and pray, Though we may long and hunger for that joy to be fully realized, we also affirm that Jesus came to bring a life that is meant to be more like a wedding filled with joy and celebration and less like a funeral filled with sadness and mourning that we have no hope in a future. That leads me to the second point that I want you to see this morning. Second point is this. The gospel is characterized by joy and celebration, not by sorrow and mourning. Jesus in the gospel message that he came to deliver, it continues to confront that legalistic and pharisaical understanding of religion. And what we should recognize is that joy is an undeniable test of our relationship with the Savior. The Pharisees were all about do's and don'ts. They were all about regulations. But the gospel is about joy. It's about recognizing that we who are sinners, who have no reason whatsoever to be invited to that supper, that God has done something special in that he has saved us through the blood of his son. And because of that, we can have joy now and joy forever. Now, there are a couple other scenes that happen, one at the end of chapter 2 and then one into chapter 3, that kind of revolve around the observance of the Sabbath. And I'm not going to go into great detail with those passages this morning because I intend to come back to them after we celebrate Easter together in a couple of weeks, Lord willing. But let me point out to you that, that for the Jews, the Sabbath was really a time of, of it was a, sort of looked at as a foretaste of the Messianic age. 
The observance of the Sabbath was something that was supposed to encompass all dimensions of time. A good Jew observing the Sabbath would look back on the things that, that, that God had done for him in the past. He would remember the things that, that God had done and blessed him and how he had carried him through and delivered him. But on the Sabbath, the Jew would also remind himself of the promises that God had made to him, of the things that were going to happen in the future that had yet to take place. And it was while he stood in the middle between those, reminding himself, remembering in the past and reminding himself of the future that he gained great comfort for the present. That was the purpose of the Sabbath. Might I just tell you that that's still a great purpose for you and I today. You and I still ought to practice a Sabbath rest in which we do the same thing that we remember what Jesus has done for us and that we remind ourselves of what He has promised to do and we take great encouragement in that in the presence and what we face today. That, quite frankly, is why we gather around the table of the Lord, which we will do next week, to do those exact things, to remember the past and the future and take courage in the present. But the Pharisees, the Pharisees, they had taken the Sabbath observance to a level that had become a far cry from what God had intended for it to be. They had taken the commandment that said, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, and they had turned it into hundreds of little laws that told them what they could and could not do on that day. They had completely taken the focus off of reflecting and off of reminding and encouraging, and they had put it all on rules and regulations. Consequently, when we see down in verse 23, if you'll peek ahead with me, the Pharisees observed Jesus... And his disciples walking through the grain fields and the disciples are picking grains of, of, of wheat and they're eating them on the Sabbath. And then the Pharisees are completely upset by that. Verse 24, they say to Jesus, look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? In other words, they really want to know, Jesus, why are you letting them do that? Don't you know that there's a, there's not, this is not the time for that? There's a time and place for picking grain and today is not the day. Later, down in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, these same scribes and Pharisees, they watch as Jesus enters the synagogue on the Sabbath. They see a man who has a withered hand there that day. And it says that they begin to watch Jesus to see if he will heal him. In other words, the question on their mind is, is he going to break the Sabbath law again? And what we recognize is that to the Pharisees, the observance of the Sabbath had become very self-centered. It had become symbolic of the Jewish person's outer holiness. But Jesus puts it pretty clearly in verse 27. He says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And then later when they're looking at him to see if he's going to heal the man with a withered hand, Jesus becomes frustrated and he asks this question. He says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save a life or kill? And it's obvious what Jesus is doing here. He's pressing these opponents of his to recognize that the Son of Man was more concerned about people and their needs than he was about the, the complex labyrinth of, of religious duties that wound up choking out grace and mercy. And really that's what leads us to recognize the third point that I want you to see on your outline today. And the third point is this. The gospel is about restoration and renewal. It's not about merciless rules and regulations. It's about restoration and renewal, not merciless rules and regulations. You see, according to the Pharisees' way of seeing things, the disciples should have just gone hungry that day. 
as opposed to breaking the Sabbath laws. The man with the withered hand, he should have just remained handicapped as opposed to being healed on the Sabbath. Jesus, however, made it clear that the gospel message that he came to deliver was far different. So having looked at these collisions that Mark shows us is continuing to take place between Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes, it really helps us go back and understand those two little parables that we find there in verses 21 and 22. Because there we begin to recognize that the new kingdom that Jesus came to inaugurate, a kingdom that calls for repentance and faith, a kingdom that is based upon the message of the gospel, well, such a gospel is not compatible with the old way of living, with the old legalistic structures of Pharisee religion. Those things just do not go together. They cannot be harmonized with one another. And just to relate how opposed the gospel is to the legalistic structure that the Pharisees practiced, let me just point you to this one verse. Look at it. Peek ahead, chapter 3, verse 6. Chapter 3, verse 6. This occurs right after Jesus heals the man with a withered hand. The man's got a whole new arm. Everybody should be rejoicing, but notice what happens. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. You ask how incompatible is the gospel of Jesus with the religion of the Pharisees? Well, they're incompatible enough that the Pharisees decided that Jesus must be destroyed. So here's the real question. What does all this have to do with you and me? It's great to study it in the scriptures, so what, but how does it lift into the 21st century, into our world? How does this apply to your life and to my life? What do the parables of new, a new patch on an old garment and new wine and old wineskins, how does that affect you and I? Well, what we really must conclude from this passage is this. You and I have to come to the conclusion that we cannot patch up our old lives by adding a little Jesus and a little Bible to it. Jesus is not a patch that you go and put onto your old life that you hope in some way will cover up the hole that is there and that by covering up that hole with a little bit of Jesus, God will suddenly look at you and say, oh, that's all you needed. No, that's not what Jesus and the gospel are all about. Jesus did not come to simply reform us a little in order to make us a little more acceptable to God. The message of repentance is entirely too encompassing for God to allow that to happen. That's the first thing. The second thing we need to know is this. Just as Jesus tells us in verse 22, new wine must be put into new wine skin. Jesus didn't come to give us lives that conform to old religious structures of do's and don'ts, but rather He came to transform our lives. See, Jesus didn't come to just reform us to some. He didn't come to cause us to conform to old structures. He came to transform our lives completely from the inside out. You see, when we repent of our sins and when we trust in Jesus to save us, he makes us a completely new creation. Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he says, look, except that you be born again, you cannot inherit 
the kingdom of heaven. In other words, Nicodemus, you can't just continue to live within the old structure of your life and expect that the kingdom of heaven is going to come and reside in you. It doesn't work that way. It's not something that you just add a little to what you've already got going on and hope that you can come up with something new. No. That's why the Apostle Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. Brothers and sisters, that is what the gospel message does. And that leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. The gospel of Jesus is not a patch to be added to our old self nor can it be contained within old religious structures. Rather, it is the good news that in Christ we are made new. Listen, wearing new robes of His righteousness and filled with the new wine of His Spirit. That's what the gospel is all about. It's a recreation from the inside out. Now listen, the winds began to blow of anger and frustration and hatred toward Jesus, they ended up, as we know, sending him to the cross. And while we may look at that and think, wow, what a terrible incident, what I want you to know is, is that because Jesus went to the cross, you and I can have this new life. Isn't that the irony of the gospel? Is that the very ones who opposed him, sending him to the cross, actually made the way for any and all who will humble themselves before him to be raised to newness of life. Everywhere the gospel is preached, two things, one of two things happens. When the gospel is preached that says you cannot rely on yourself and your own goodness in order to save you, one of two things happen. People find it to be the most beautiful and glorious message that they've ever heard and they fall on their face and they humble themselves before the Christ who gave himself and gave his life for them and in the end age when he comes and he grabs the hand of his bride and takes us home they'll be a part of that or the other thing that happens is that people stand with pride in their self-righteousness and they refuse to believe that they are not good enough to save themselves and the Bible is clear those who are proud in their heart, God will humble. New wine goes into new wineskins. And that is the precious word of God that is given to those of us who believe. Because brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Father.